Matthew chapter 12, starting from verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The second reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Revelation, chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended." After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, Standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for this opportunity that we can be as your people to gather together. 
to now hear you speak and sit under your word. We pray for our brother Jordan, who's not able to gather with us. Would you pray he's resting well, that he's uh, got a good opportunity to meet with a doctor and get an x-ray soon. Most of all, Father, we bring, uh, ask that you'll bring him healing and that he will trust you through this time as he's uh, not able to do the normal things he would normally love to do and is able to do. As he is served uh, and less serving others, we pray that he'll commit his life uh, and his healing into your hands. So, Father, we pray now that you would speak. Speak, O Lord, through this, your word. Whatever our preconceived ideas, whatever our misunderstandings, we ask that this passage would help us be comforted and assured as we conquer for Christ. And help this passage be a warning of what awaits all of us. Help this warning then throw us back onto Christ our Saviour. For we pray in his name. Amen. What will happen at the end? After we have died, when our physical bodies stop functioning, what will happen afterwards? There is a, this is such a persistent question, isn't it? You know, for all the advances of our science and technology, for all the improvements in our lives from the Industrial Revolution, for all the modern medicine which can extend our lives beyond any previous generation, most people still have this one fundamental and persistent question. What happens at the end of it all? It's a question that pretty much every religion has tried to answer. And it's interesting how pretty much every religion comes to one, at least, common conclusion. After we die, we face some sort of judgment. That we will have our good deeds judged alongside our bad deeds. And for most religions, you get into heaven, you get into the good place by having more good deeds than bad, and you end up in hell, or you end up in the bad place by having more bad deeds than good. Over my long service leave, uh, I got to finally watch a show that has been on my to-watch playlist for a while, The Good Place. It's an incredible show, really humorous, very clever, and it follows the story of that blonde woman in the middle, Eleanor Shellstrop, uh, who wakes up after her death and is welcome to The Good Place. What makes the show particularly interesting, though, is that Eleanor knows that she doesn't belong there. She was a bad person, and there's been some sort of mistake. Now, the show itself isn't a Christian one. And in fact, God is never mentioned at all, very rarely mentioned at all. It is essentially a secular, humanist, moral, and ethically philosophical show. Now, if that doesn't turn you off, go watch it. But even though God is not present, even the secular, humanistic writers couldn't escape this one fundamental truth or this one crucial religious idea that after we die, we are judged by our works. This is one of the most fundamental themes that runs in the whole series, that every good deed earns you points and every bad deed takes those points away. And at the end of life, judgment awaits. That what we've done on this earth counts in eternity. Now, Revelation 20 says something very similar. But unlike the good place, it actually tells us why judgment happens. Judgment happens because Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus reigns, and we will be held accountable to God. 
Now, before we get into the passage, I want to flag something here because uh, this passage that we're looking at today is one of the most highly debated in terms of interpretation. When it comes to end time stuff, that shouldn't surprise us. And I know that for some of us here, there may be a different interpretation of this passage than what I'm going to walk us through. And you know what? That's actually fine. We don't have to have 100% agreement on this particular passage in order to be united together in Christ. But what we do all need to do, what we must all of us do, is hold our interpretation humbly. Right? In the end, when Jesus returns and when all is done and dusted and everything is settled, none of us are going to be patting ourselves on the back because we got our end times interpretation correct. We will be all too busy in awe and wonder of Jesus. Now, if you didn't know that this is debated, well, that's fine. Walk along the passage with me. At the end of today, I'm open for any particular questions that you might have, uh, so please come up and ask if you have any questions or if you'd like to work through how you maybe have heard this or your own particular view of Revelation 20 uh, and verses or compared to what we're going to go through today. But what I'm going to go through, what I'm going to do today is just walk through the passage how I see it and hopefully it makes sense as we go along and hopefully we'll all see that even if you do have a different view of how it all works, we can at least agree on the main points that are being said. Satan loses, Christians win, and judgment awaits. Let's dive in. Well, actually, before we dive in, <laughs> uh, before we get into the specifics of the text, uh, let me do a brief recap of where we've been so far. So if this is your first time here, welcome. Revelation 20, let's dive in. Revelation 17 is where we started a few weeks ago. And we saw in Revelation 17, we got introduced to two images, a prostitute and a beast, symbols of earthly and satanic power aligned with each other against God. Uh, they look powerful and intimidating, and their power extends to even the persecution and killing of Christians. Then in Revelation 18, we saw the sudden fall of the prostitute. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Babylon and prostitute, same thing. This causes grief to the merchants of the world, grieving not at her fall in particular, but grieving at what they lose when she falls. They focus on the loss of their money and their wealth because she is now gone. In Revelation 19, the reaction to Babylon's fall continues. But instead of grieving her fall, we hear rejoicing from God's people. Praise and glory given to God for this act of judgment. Now, I want to argue that Revelation 17 through to 20 are actually focusing on the same event. You can see that in the following table I'm about to put up on the screen, which compares the languages of chapters 17, 19, and 20. And you'll notice that there's an overlap of ideas and wording. Now, if you, don't miss, if you miss this, and you know, don't feel, feel free to not have to take this all down, but just let it soak in. If you want to watch it again, feel free to jump online and check out the YouTube channel and see how it goes. But here we begin in chapter 17, verse 8. Right? We notice the beast that you saw was and is not. And that parallels, interestingly, to our chapter, chapter 20, where we see the dragon who was bound for a thousand years. He was and is not. Then in 17 verse 8, the second half, he was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit, paralleling in our chapter, chapter 20 verse 3, which after that he must be released for a little while. Chapter 17 verse 12. And the ten horns that you see are the ten kings who are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Now that parallels with 
chapter 19, verse 19, and I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies, which also parallels with chapter 20, verse 7 and 8, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released and will come out to deceive the nations. And you can see at the bottom of that, to gather them for battle. And you can see the parallels again with 17, 19, 20. They make war, they gather for war, they gather for battle. Then finally, you see the parallels towards the end in chapter 17, verse 14, and the lamb will conquer them. Chapter 19, verse 20, the beast was captured with the false prophet, uh, with chapter 20, verse 9, consumed them and the devil. And notice how both chapters 19 and 20 end with being thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur. I think all of that indicates that chapters 17 through to 20 are not meant to be read chronologically one after the other. I think they are a series of visions about the same event. Think about it this way. If you're watching TV and you're watching the soccer on TV and you suddenly something big happens, like a big highlight, a goal is scored, right? What happens next if you're watching on TV? Actually, my son, Jaden, went to a birthday party. They got taken to a Brisbane Raw game last night. I uh, went to a soccer match and there was still a, a big TV there, a uh, big screen for everyone to watch the highlights. But what happens after a goal is scored? Right? The broadcast gives you all these different highlights of the same thing, but from all these different camera angles. And so you get the same event happening, but with a bit more of a different perspective. You see a little bit more something different from this angle versus that. And essentially what happens then is with our passage, Revelation 20, I think what happens is that now we get zoomed out footage to get a whole view of the entire field to see all the things that happen in the lead up to that goal. The book of Revelation has been a little bit like that. Right? I encourage you, if you're new with us or have been with us only a few weeks, head to our church website, go to the sermon archive, and have a listen to the previous sermons uh, in the book of Revelation, especially once we get beyond the letters to the church, uh, the letter to the churches, I should say. Uh, you get all these visions. We begin to see a lot of parallels with all of these visions. Right? It's not a series of visions chronologically one after the other, but action replays from multiple angles showing us the same event, from different perspectives. So, why is John doing this? Couldn't he have just said it once? Why is John giving us all of these looks? Now we can look at our passage and find out why. We begin today's passage with a fourth vision. Not the first, the fourth. Uh, You see how John starts verse 1, then I saw with those words. That little phrase is actually used back all the way back in chapter 19, verse 11. And, uh, and from 1911 through to chapter 21, John sees seven visions. He's, then I saw and I saw. We read that seven times. In 1911, John saw a rider on a white horse, Jesus coming to bring judgment. Then in 1917, he sees the gathering of all the nations for judgment. And the third vision he sees is the fall of the beast in 1919. Now here, the fourth vision, John begins and sees an angel coming down from heaven. An angel holds some keys to a bottomless pit and a great chain. And then in verse 2, he seizes the dragon, the dragon that we met back in chapter 12. The dragon, the ancient serpent who was in the Garden of Eden tempting Adam and Eve, the devil, Satan himself. Right? What a mighty wrestle must have taken place as the two clash together. But ultimately, the angel wins and binds Satan, throwing him into the pit, sealing it over for a thousand years. Now, a couple of big questions. What does it mean for Satan to be bound? 
and locked away like this? And when is all of this happening? I don't think this passage is to say that Satan is completely locked away, having no influence in the world at all. Now, here's why. The language of the binding of Satan, I think, picks up the same language of Jesus in the parable of Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Similar parable occurs in Mark chapter 3. Now, brief context as to what's happened there in that dialogue in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus has performed a few miracles, and then he's accused by the Pharisees of using, uh, performing these miracles by the power of Satan. Excuse me, by the power of Satan. Now, Jesus fires back that this makes no sense, and he shoots them down with a few arguments. The first argument is that a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is up against Satan and his demons, then that is not a kingdom that's going to last for long. Second, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then how do your sons of the sons of the Pharisees cast out demons? By what power are they doing it? Right? That's a pretty big argument there too. Uh, But then he goes on to make a third argument, and he says this little one-line parable. Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now remember from context, who is the strong man in this scenario? The strong man is Satan. He is the strong man and his plunder, the goods he has stored away, are souls enslaved to sin and death. So what has Jesus come to do? He has come to plunder the strong man, to save people out of hell and into heaven, into a living relationship with God his Father. But in order to do that, he must first bind the strong man. Now John sees the same thing here happening in Revelation 20. He sees the binding of Satan. This happened on the cross of Jesus. Jesus defeats Satan through his death, And at his resurrection, Jesus then leads slaves to sin and Satan out of slavery and to freedom in him. Paul says something very similar in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, Jesus disarms Satan and is victorious over Satan on the cross. Satan is bound then. He is unable to deceive the nations any longer. Again, I think in the context of not just Revelation, but the entire New Testament and the Bible, I don't think this means we are meant to read this to say that Satan will never speak and have no influence, but that Satan will no longer be the only speaker. Now there is the gospel message, the truth that will set captives free. I read the story during the week of an old woman who was living in a home by herself. Her neighbor convinced her that she needed to sell her home to him. And he argued that as he walked through the house, there seemed to be a lot of structural defects. It was going to take a lot of work to fix her home. There was problems here and there. So she sold it to her neighbor for one quarter of the value of the home. I can see the students here looking blank. I can see the homeowners here going, ouch, 
That's not right, and it is not right. She went to a lawyer, all confused, and it was actually discovered that the neighbor was conning her. Right? There were no structural issues at all. Apparently, there was one leaky tap that needed to be fixed. See, now that she had a lawyer, her neighbor was bound. He could deceive her no longer. Someone with the truth was now speaking to this old woman. Satan is unable to deceive in the same way. Yes, in the New Testament, he still tempts people. He is still a roaring lion waiting to devour unsuspecting believers. But his powers and ability to deceive have been greatly trimmed. Well, think about it this way. For generations upon generation, the good news of the glory of God appearing on earth and dwelling with people was restricted to a tiny geographical area with the people who constantly failed to live in relationship with God. And then Jesus comes, and now the gospel has gone through the entire world with countless billions of people who have named Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Satan is bound. His property is being plundered. He is now thrown into a bottomless pit for a thousand years. Now, for those who don't know, it's this particular number which has created a quite a bit of confusion and debate in this passage. Uh, but if we remain consistent in how we're interpreting numbers in Revelation, then this number isn't meant to be literal, but symbolic of a long period of time. 1,000 is generally a number of great magnitude in the book of Revelation. So if the binding of Satan happens at the cross then this 1,000 years refers to the entire time between Jesus, his resurrection, and his second coming. So the binding of Satan then seems to be present right now because Jesus has come. He has died for our sins. He has been raised to life. He has disarmed Satan. The gospel of Jesus is now presently going throughout the world, destroying the deception of Satan. Then John sees a fifth vision, another vision of what is happening in the present. First, in uh, verse 4, John sees some thrones, and look what else he sees. Read with me again from verse 4. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So what does John see, or who does John see? He sees a bunch of martyrs, Christians who have been faithful to Jesus, who have not worshipped the beast, and who have given their lives in testifying to Jesus. These are the martyrs that we first met in Revelation chapter 6, who were standing around the throne of God, crying out for justice. And now here, towards the end of the book of Revelation, we come full circle. Justice is given to them. Because here they come to life and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. And at the end of verse 5, we read that this is the first resurrection. Now, this is a bit tricky, but try and follow along with me. 
this is referring, this first resurrection, a first resurrection implies that there's a second resurrection, which is what we see at the end of our chapter. Everyone comes back to life to stand before God in judgment. You notice that there was a reference to the second death. The second death implies a first death. So follow with me for a second. The first resurrection is referring to a spiritual resurrection to those who belong to Jesus. It is the gift that we presently have. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, you are raised to life. It's why in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul can say, anyone who is in Christ is seated with him presently in the heavenly places. So this first resurrection is the spiritual resurrection of all believers with Jesus now that guarantees our future physical resurrection, a physical resurrection to eternal life. It is Christians who are blessed and holy in verse 6 because they have this resurrection and notice that the second death has no power over them. There is a first death, a physical one, but then there is also a second death. Now, what's going on here? So, if the first resurrection is spiritual, that, uh, is a spiritual one that Christians receive upon being born again in Christ, that guarantees a physical resurrection in the future to eternal life. But it's swapped a little bit with the deaths. The first death we all experience is a physical one. All of us, if Jesus doesn't return, will all physically die. But the second death is a spiritual death. It is judgment and condemnation for all eternity under the wrath of God. Those who are non-believers, we're told, remain dead. They do not come to life until the thousand years is ended. Now, I don't think this means that they remain dead and that they're unaware. Some of you may have heard the term soul sleep. You die in your next waking conscious moment is when you're actually at the judgment seat. In the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Jesus tells of how the rich man goes to Hades and experiences present torment. That parable doesn't work if, that doesn't, if, the, if the idea of present consciousness happens after death, if that doesn't happen. Right? So I don't think John is contradicting Jesus here. The word life in the Bible doesn't always just mean physical life, right? The heartbeat, the electrical impulses that are rushing through our bodies and our brains. Life in the Bible also carries the idea of being blessed by God, of having abundance from Him, of being in relationship with Him. It's why Moses can speak to a people who are living and breathing and tell them to choose life, right? Those who are non-believers have not experienced this life. And so, after their physical death, they do not taste this life, but remain dead. And all of this happens for a thousand years, the same length of time as the binding of Satan. And again, the reference here to to the time between Christ's resurrection and his second coming. Christians, upon physical death, are raised to life and reign with Jesus in heaven now. Now, if all of this is happening in the present, what does this mean? Revelation 20 might be one of the most hotly debated passages, and in particular these six verses that we've spent time uh, teasing out, but surely, surely John wrote this more than just to have this debated. 
So what is John's purpose in telling us what is happening right now with Satan and with the saints? Remember the overriding chief purpose of the entire book of Revelation, why the whole book has been written. The book of Revelation is written to help believers conquer. Remember that word conquer, right? The Greek word Nike, right? It's one of the most common, it's one of the words that appears commonly throughout the entire book. The book of Revelation is written to help Christians conquer, to help them persevere in the faith. And so here in chapter 20, John is giving us a picture of present reality that we conquer with. So Satan is defeated, he's disarmed, he's bound, and believers reign with Jesus. And so there should be joy. There should be joy that, and that we can rejoice with, that no matter what Satan is up to, he can't change this fundamental reality. That there is joy in knowing that the gospel can and will continue to go out into the world and will go out into the world. And it will call people to repentance and it will transform lives and it will transform communities. And that work is safe from the hands of Satan. There is joy in knowing that what Jesus says about his church is true, that not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. And there's assurance here too. Christians are secure. Not even those who give up their lives for Jesus will have Jesus robbed from them. You cannot kill a Christian. You can only change his address. So the old saying goes. But there's also a simple daily assurance. I mean, you know, most of us may not die for our faith, but there's still a daily assurance here from this picture as well. That no matter how hard life is, no matter what sacrifices you have to make in order to persevere for your faith, right, the daily dying of yourself to follow Jesus, right, the hard work of standing up for Jesus, no matter how the beast attacks you through your friendships or your workplace or even your school and your education, no matter what attacks you face as a believer, it's all worth it in the end. Faithfulness to Jesus, persevering in following him and living for him, that will never fail to be worth it. Notice again in verse 6 what Christians become. Over, this, over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. Now remember it was the priests in the Old Testament who had the privilege of being able to access the presence of God. If you weren't a priest, you had to stand outside and just kind of try and look over the fence. But if you were a priest, you got to be in his presence and to experience the joy of that. Uh, During the week, I saw yesterday, actually, that one of the clayers, one of the young workers of our church, had a visit from former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd in Australia. Look at the joy on Joseph's face there as Kevin Rudd puts his arm around his shoulder and says cheese. Right? What a joy to be in his presence. I remember a few years ago that Kathy and Alvin were in Sunnybank at a restaurant, and who walked in? Kevin Rudd. <laughs> and they took a grab to selfie with him too. What joy it was for them. Do, have you got this printed out and hung on your wall at home? You do? Okay. 
I, I remember. There's no photos of Joshua and, and Aaron anywhere, but photo of Kevin. No. Whose presence do Christians get to enjoy forever? I can tell you this. It's one who is more infinitely glorious than Kevin Rudd. One who is infinitely more beautiful. Infinitely more grand whose glory goes on forever and ever, that will never, that there will never come a time when we are bored of the glory of God. Friends, conquer in Christ. Persevere in the faith. Satan is bound. He cannot harm you. And so keep living faithfully today and reign with Jesus forevermore because it's worth it. Halfway. In verse 7, the thousand years then end. Satan is released from his prison. And at some point in the future, that's what happens before the second coming of Jesus, Satan will be released and his activity will be intense. Have a look at verse 7 to 10 with me. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their, numbers is like, their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we hear Satan is released and immediately gets to work. A thousand years of restraints come off, and he heads out to deceive the nations, gathering them all together. Uh, The reference there to Gog and Magog is a reference to Ezekiel 38 to 39. Uh, It's a symbolic representation of all those who oppose God. And together, they all gather for battle, and it's an intimidating sight. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They march together in formation. They surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. This is war imagery picked directly from the pages of the Old Testament. Like the Babylonian army belonging to Nebuchadnezzar, who surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And in that story, the city then ended up being thoroughly wiped out. But here, the story is different. And just like last week, remember, Babylon has fallen. But just like last week, we, <clears throat> we have this scene again. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have this scene again. <clears throat> a scene that if it were a movie, we'd be asking for a refund. Right? Instead of a big third act, computer-generated epic battle sequence, we get instead a snap of the fingers and everything is finished. Fire rains down immediately, consuming these armies, and then Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. This is hell. Fire is often a symbol of God's judgment in the Bible. The lake of fire is the place of eternal judgment and punishment from God. And the future defeat of Satan is assured. So friends, you can persevere and conquer today knowing that his defeat is certain. Paul will tell us to put in Ephesians chapter 6 to put on our spiritual armor because we wage a spiritual battle, but the battle is also won. But it's not all good news. There is a final word of warning here at the end, a warning of judgment that awaits. Judgment isn't the most fun of subjects, right? We spent a long time last year thinking about that topic of judgment, and here we are again. But judgment is a fascinating subject, isn't it? 
And it's one of the reasons I found the TV show The Good Place so absorbing. So that even for a secular humanist show, without God, it, it cannot escape the knowledge and sense that judgment awaits after death. It, that's, that just makes sense. Now, if you're here today, and if you're not a believer, or you're not a follower of Jesus, and, the, and Jesus isn't your Lord and Savior, or maybe, maybe you're one of those who have been to church all your life, and it just hasn't clicked for you yet. I think what this passage actually says is something that will resonate with you. Judgment may sound daunting, but even for non-believers, there's still a desire for judgment. We all want some form of justice in this life. We all want some form of justice in the next life. If you see someone getting away with evil and they are not brought to justice, there is something in all of us that says that is not right. Something more should have happened. In World War II, after it had been exposed what the Nazis in Germany and, had done and the horrifying things they had done and the six million Jews that they had callously killed, when Hitler committed suicide, ah, that was a punch in the gut for the world. Justice for Hitler had gone. And so when his generals and his commanders were then lined up in the international court and tried and sentenced, that gave a bit of closure for people because it felt like justice had been somewhat meted out. Well, in the final vision for today, vision number six, John sees a great white throne, the throne of God, and he sees judgment. But this throne room scene is not the, the awesome scene of Revelation 4. This is Judgment Day. Even the earth and the sky have to run away from this moment. Have a look at verse 12 with me. <clears throat> and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here it is. The moment at the end that everyone knows is coming. What will happen at the end? What happens at the end is that everyone who has ever lived and died, great or small, are raised to life to stand before this throne. Even death in Hades, the place of the dead, give up their dead inside to be judged. And see how they are judged in verse 12. Books upon books are opened. Book after book after book. And in these pages, in the pages of those books, are written all of the deeds and the misdeeds of everyone. The things that we have done which are good and the things which were bad. The right and the wrong. The selfless and the selfish. Everyone is judged by what is written in those books. Friends, here's a sobering truth that we must hold on to, that we have to believe. 
Every one of us has stuff written in those books. Every one of us. If we were to be judged on that basis alone of what appears in those books, then none of us would get into the good place. Every single human being would deserve to be in the lake of fire. See, it's, it's not because that we haven't done enough good, that we've actually been, we've done more bad than good, but it's that everything we do is stained by sin. Sin is our rebellion against God. It's our way of telling God that even though he is the creator and sustainer of all things, and that gives him the right to rule our lives, sin is the rejection of God and rebellion against him. It's to say to him, no, I will rule my life my own way. Even your best deeds, if you do not follow Christ, are stained and done with this rebellion against God. I picture it this way. Say you're on a boat and you look through a telescope and you spot another boat off into the distance. You zoom in and you spot a sailor on that boat and you start to watch the sailor very closely and you notice that the sailor is a very good sailor. He keeps his uniform pressed neatly. He follows every order of his commander and he performs those duties cheerfully. He helps out willingly his fellow uh, sailors and they appreciate his work deeply. He keeps his bed nice and crisp. See, by every measure, this man is a good sailor. He is a good person. And then you zoom out and you see his boat. And then you zoom out a little bit more and you see the flag under which he is sailing. And it's a pirate flag. See, this man isn't just a sailor, he was a pirate. Now, how does that color all of the good works that you've just been watching? All of his good works were done in the service of rebellion and pillaging and death. Friends, that is what is stamped over all of our deeds. Written in those books, over every good deed is the stain of sin, of rebellion against God. And the end point for anyone like this is found in verses 14 and 15. It is to be justly thrown into the lake of fire with death and Hades and Satan and the beasts and the prostitute into hell to experience God's judgment and wrath for all eternity. And this moment is just. It is fair. It is so filled and saturated with justice that nobody will ever be able to shout out that they were innocent, that they've been wrongly accused. Everyone in hell will know that what they are experiencing is deserved. But there will be no grief and repentance. There is no sorrow for sin in hell. If we are relying on our good works to get us into heaven and into relationship with God, well, this chapter is bad news. So is there any good news from this? Well, there is another book in the pile. Did you notice it? Have a look again at verse 12. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Verse 15 again. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What is this book of life? Simply put, the book of life is your only ticket out of the bad place. 
As long as your name is written in the book of life, there will be no judgment, no condemnation, and there'll be no confusion of names either. Your name, known by Jesus personally, confessed by Jesus before his Father, will secure you a place in paradise forever. So, how do you get your name into the book of life? Well, first step is that you must trust and believe who Jesus is and what he has done for you. You must believe that Jesus is God's son, that he has come to this earth, earth, lived a perfect life in obedience to God, never sinning once, but yet dying the death of a sinner. You must believe that Jesus has died for you in your place. He has died for me. He died the death that you and I deserve for our sins. He has died for our sins. You must believe that Jesus' death has taken away the punishment that you deserve. This is what the Bible calls mercy and grace. God has mercifully taken away the punishment that you deserve, and he has graciously given you forgiveness and relationship with him. And then you must believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, that he is raised to life and is victorious over death and king. You must believe that he is raised to heaven to rule and reign as king forever. He reigns now presently and will one day return to close off all history. You must believe all of that. But crucially, in the book of Revelation, it's important that we must persevere in trusting all of that. It's not about believing once and you'll be fine. It's about holding on to these truths every day, no matter how hard it is to to live for Jesus. Hear the words of Jesus again, all the way back at the start of the book of Revelation. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. See that? Jesus will not blot your name out if you conquer if you keep trusting and following him. So to conquer is just to keep trusting and to keep living for Jesus with him as king of your life. Now, there's a final warning there. Trust Jesus and follow him. Conquer and persevere in following Jesus, and you will find your name in the book of life. But if you want to rely on your own good works, if you want to rely on the fact that you're a good person, or, you know, you've got a good history to save you, then you are in deep trouble. Given these options, it would be foolish not to trust Jesus. It would be foolish to continue to protest your innocence. How many of you here know the name of the actor Jussie Smollett? Back in 2019, he claimed to be a victim of a hate crime. He claimed that two white men beat him up, yelled racial slurs. Uh, Jussie is an African-American man. They yelled racial slurs. They poured bleach on him and tied a noose around his neck. But after a lengthy and expensive police investigation, it was discovered that Jussie orchestrated the whole thing. The evidence was clear. It wasn't two white men who beat him up, but two Nigerian bodybuilders who were paid by Jussie to stage the whole thing. It was all a hoax to try and build Jussie's public profile. He was arrested and tried for reporting a hoax hoax hate crime and convicted. And then on Friday, our time, he was sentenced to five months prison and fined close to $200,000. Now, the astonishing thing as I was watching the, the sentencing live was that when the judge handed down the sentence 
and all the orders, Jussie stood up and he yelled and maintained his innocence. Now, at the same time, I was watching the Twitter feed just to see people's reaction to that, and it was completely predictable. Everyone was astonished at the incredible foolishness of Jussie, protesting his innocence when the case was about as clear as it could be, sentenced by a jury of his peers beyond a reasonable doubt that he had committed this hoax and was now being punished for it. Now, there could be a, a small shred of a chance that Jussie's right and that he actually is innocent, but when we stand before God, there will be none of that. Don't be a fool and think you'll be fine. Don't be a fool and protest your innocence. Turn now and trust in Jesus. And do that today and tomorrow, and the day after that, and after that, and after that. Well, here's Revelation 20 for us. A highly debated chapter, but really, I think, with a simple message. Satan loses, Christians win, the Lamb will reign, and everyone will be judged. So, let that shape your present reality now. Let it give you assurance and joy to keep sharing the gospel to this world and living for Jesus. And let it warn us that we are to keep following and living for Jesus so that our names are found in the book of life. Let me pray. Father in heaven, help us to see what John has seen. Help us to believe and to conquer. May our names be in that book of life as we seek to live for you, as we live for you, then give us joy and assurance of the things we believe. We pray this for your glory and our eternal joy in Jesus' name. Amen.